Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. One of the final refrains in God's marvelous book in the 14th verse of Revelation 22, reminding us yet one last time of the importance of obedience to the commandments of our Savior, to the great things that God has set before us. It is good, as was already mentioned, to see visitors that have come our way this evening. We're appreciative and thankful for your presence and hope that the opportunity will soon be yours, that you'll be able to come back and be with us here at Pippin. As you may have noted in the bulletin, as well as in the screen or on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson this evening shall be No Cost, No Value. And the text, as Brother Eddie read for us from the closing chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, is perhaps a scene in the life of David that is on one hand somewhat forgettable in that that's not one of the most familiar scenes of his life. But may I submit that the Holy Spirit has nonetheless recorded it, and it is there for my study and for yours. For it is still the case that for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through comfort and patience of the Scriptures might have hope. Paul's famous words of Romans 15.4. With those things stated, I would encourage you to note some introductory thoughts about the title of this lesson, and then from there we'll study more carefully the closing chapter of 2 Samuel. Sometimes you and I hear the phrase, no cost, used in our society. There are no-cost mortgages, no-cost loans, no-cost contracts, just to name three usages or instances in which that word is employed. More often than not, I suspect, we seem to view the adjective no-cost as a good thing, namely that something is being obtained without any investment upon our part. The fees, for instance, are taken care of or included in the cost, if you will. However, it's sometimes interesting to note that Sometimes no cost also means little value. That is to say, one often does get what one pays for. Maybe all of us have been there more than once in our lifetime when something that seemed a tremendously good bargain turned out in the final analysis to be far different than what we might have wished. And it may well have been that the phrase no cost was a part of that which we ultimately were part of. In fact, there are other scenes and avenues in life when I'd submit to you no cost ultimately means no value. And in fact, that was the thrust of the reason I chose the lesson as I did tonight in its title. There was a time in the life of David, centuries ago now, in which he had to wrestle with this same matter, the issue that something that appeared no cost, and let us look and see how David reacted to that. Did he perceive it to have value? If he did, what was the basis of that value that it had? And might that be meaningful for our life today as we strive to serve the God of heaven? No cost, no value. As we often do in our lessons, let's first set the stage by looking at the scene of 2 Samuel 24. And with that said, we'll be ready to look more carefully at the nature of the statement that David made. We're well aware of the fact that David was a man after God's own heart. To borrow the phraseology from both 1 Samuel 13 as well as Acts 13. When those statements were made, they were descriptive of a man whose intent and desire was to please his heavenly father. He well understood from the nature of his upbringing, from the desire that he even exhibited in the nature of his victory, for instance, over Goliath, that he was desirous of serving God. To say that, though, does not mean that he made no mistakes. David was imperfect. 
He committed sin. You and I could easily name an instance or two in his life. One of them, the matter of adultery he committed with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11. On another occasion, same chapter by the way, he actually was behind the murder of her husband. Now, no doubt those are the most familiar scenes of the sinful character of his life, but those weren't the only ones. Tonight's lesson will bring to our memory yet one that we no doubt have read, having to do with a parcel of land and the features surrounding what ultimately set up that problem in his life. The statements I've made there lead me to ask you to note this. As we study 2 Samuel 24, I might encourage us to remember that, as is often true in the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, accounts may well be recorded in other books. Much, for instance, of the Chronicles is also found in the Kings. It is the case that tonight's lesson, taken from the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel, is mirrored, or that is to say, reappears, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So if this week you desire to look more interestingly and read those passages, you might want to read the chapters together. We will refer to both of them this evening in the course of our lesson. Sometimes some of the details in the Chronicles text supplement those actually found in the text in 2 Samuel. Let us note the events then as they unfolded in this chapter. First of all, by this time David had already become the king of Israel. Saul had already been deposed. As David was now the king, we notice that he gives an ordered a decree, if you will, a kingly command that the children of Israel, in terms of their fighting men, were to be numbered. David was desirous of knowing how many fighting people, men, could comprise an army in Israel. He apparently did not know that specific number, but desired to do so, and hence he gave Joab, his commander-in-chief, the order to make that numbering. As you'll quickly note with me, Joab perceived that the matter of numbering Israel was not a good idea. And in fact, he even perceived there was a degree of sinfulness in it. Thus, he attempted to encourage David to come to his senses and not number Israel. And it would appear from the reading that several of David's other captains apparently tried to do the same. But the king would not be dissuaded. He again was firmly set on knowing that number and thus demanded that Joab provide that information to him. In response to that, Joab and his captains proceeded to number Israel and thus they rode throughout all the nation of Israel and nine months and twenty days later they returned to give David the final number. It took that long for them to proceed throughout the entirety of the region and to provide the information that David had requested. David apparently in the meantime came somewhat to his senses and he did not do that alone but rather God through one of the prophets aided him and hence he ultimately suspended the decree. Maybe we should pause and ask, why was it a sinful matter to take a census of the children of Israel? Why was that a wrong thing for David to do? Might we notice the wrongness in it was not merely in taking a census. There's nothing wrong per se in that. It was the attitude that David exhibited. It was the reason why he wanted to know that piece of information. David wanted to know that so he could place his trust in the armies of Israel rather than in God. Joab, in fact, attempted to help him see that point. Joab asked him, Would not the God of heaven provide all the armament and all the soldiers needed in time of Israel? David was not persuaded by the argument. 
proceeding rather to place his trust in the number of the fighting people whom he had at his disposal. Ultimately, might it be noted, there's a great principle involved in sinfulness and in transgression. Did not Solomon, the very son of David, proclaim in Proverbs 13, 15 that the way of transgressors is hard? Given the fact that David had now sinned, what would the punishment be? How would God reckon with and deal with this sinfulness that David had done in attempting to number Israel and to place the trust that he had in the armies rather than in God himself? Perhaps we can quickly see what ultimately came to pass. We find in 2 Samuel 24 that this is what God decided. This is God's decree. He ordered the prophet Gad, who was a prophet who labored in the time of David, to come before David and give him a choice. It isn't often that God gave choices to people who were in sin so that they could choose their own punishment, but he did in David's case. Gad came before David and said, You must choose one of the following three things. First, will you prefer to have three days' pestilence from God? Or secondly, would you prefer, in fact, to suffer three years of famine? Thirdly, would you prefer rather to have three months of being pursued and consumed by your enemies? David, which will it be? You and I can quickly see none of those choices are particularly pleasant or favorable. Three days pestilence, three months fleeing before one's enemies, three years of famine. David, you must choose one. Which will it be? After a short amount of thinking, David chose the three days pestilence from God. And this is the reason why he chose that. He thought that God would be merciful and he would prefer to rely upon the mercies of God rather than on the unmercifulness so often displayed by human beings. For after all, three months of being consumed by his enemies, he was in at the mercy of those who hated him. That he did not choose. The three years of famine, he was at the mercy of thus what he would have to find food from other people. He did not wish that one either. But at least three days pestilence from God, he thought he might come out the better. God was true to his promise. He brought three days of pestilence. Seventy thousand Israelites died as a result of that pestilence. Here we find that the children of Israel suffered mightily for the sinfulness that David had done and also in part for the trust that they placed in the armies of Israel rather than in God. Might we pause to note a powerful lesson for us? Where we place our trust is not a trivial matter. Do we place it in our bank account, in our homes, in our own United States government? For if we do, we are treading thin ice indeed. We notice that God did not look favorably upon not being trusted by David and by Israel, and for that he punished them severely. May you and I ever learn the famous words of both Jeremiah as well as of many other prophets, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. That refrain from Jeremiah 17, 7 reminds us of the ever-present need even in the New Testament. How often did Paul encourage us to put our trust in none other than God? As we notice then some of the succeeding scenes from 2 Samuel 24, consider that once David had made that choice, that leads me to the following set of ideas as well. On one occasion, as that three days of pestilence was overrunning Palestine, 
the time came when that destroying angel had advanced as far as Jerusalem. And this angel was, in fact, on the outskirts of Jerusalem at the threshing floor of Ornan. David was able to visibly see that destroying angel. At that moment, David fell prostrate and pleaded with God to pause and to cease the destroying. In fact, stating that I am primarily to blame. Don't destroy Israel. Don't take the lives of these innocent ones. God heard that prayer, and he heard that plea. That's the reason I mentioned it would appear that the matter was suspended. God stopped that destroying angel from destroying Jerusalem. God spared it. But notice I stated that it occurred at the threshing floor of Ornan. At that point, the prophet again, Gad, came to David. And as a response to David's penitent prayer, God, through the prophet, said, You need to build an altar and make a sacrifice here at the threshing floor of Ornan as a symbol of that which has taken place, namely the secession of the destruction. Now we come to where tonight's lesson more fully takes its place. When Ornan recognized that David was in need of that threshing floor, he offered to give it to the king. In fact, he insisted, David, take it for free. You need not pay me a single dime for it. David responded by saying, I will not take it for free. Let us read again verse 24. The king said unto Ornan, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. As you and I read the matter as it stated before us, David thus prevailed. He paid for this threshing floor as well as the oxen that Ornan possessed. And as we pay careful attention, we notice that David made a critical statement along the way. I will not offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. I might mention along the way as we consider carefully that which is set before us. In 1 Chronicles 21-25, the purchase price of this land is said to be 600 shekels of gold. And that's the reason I listed on the screen as I did. That appears to be different than the asking price here in, in the book of 2 Samuel. We ought not see a contradiction in that. It may well be that the matter stated in one is only for a portion, whereas that in the first Chronicles is certainly all of it, all of the particular threshing floor. Maybe the one in the second Samuel was only for the oxen, or many other explanations might be offered, but they are not contradictory. With a statement made that David, in fact, purchased it, that leads us to ask about our life in Christ. David apparently perceived that that which was of no cost to him actually had no value. I submit to you that that's worthy of more careful consideration. With David's words as a guide, let us consider some of the following ideas, if we, if we might. You and I realize that under the beautiful Christian dispensation, we have the precious privilege, and a marvelous one it is indeed, to understand how great Christianity is. It is, in fact, is so great that the angels and prophets of long ago desired to look into it. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 13. They lived in a time prior to Christ ever coming to set forth the Christian era. However, they knew by prophecy that it would come. 
how longingly they desired to experience it. May I submit to you that in terms of what Jesus has accomplished, Christianity in the church is of mighty great value. It certainly could not be said to have no cost. Consider Jesus himself. It cost Jesus everything. When the God of heaven, as almighty as he was, dispatched his son to this low ground of sin and sorrow, Jesus stated in John 6, 38, I came to do thy will, O God. It was his mission to carry out that which the God of heaven had proclaimed and demanded. And Jesus knew all along that would ultimately require his death. Just as certainly as he was born and placed in that manger in Bethlehem, it was vir virtually in the shadow of the cross. For it was to that cross he was headed. He came forth to die for the sins of all. Early in the gospel account of John, we read, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That sin would be taken away as the Lord shed his blood, of course. You see, Jesus gave his life everything physically that one could imagine giving, he gave. And he well knew that that was to happen. In John 10, verse 17, Jesus himself admitted, I lay down my life that I may take it again. He knew it would require the fullness, the totality of his life. In Hebrews 2, verse 9, that very famous statement, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. When he was thus crucified at Calvary at that old hill Golgotha, he took my place there because I'm a sinner. And he took your place there for the same reason. He gave everything. When that Roman soldier pierced his gentle side in John 19.34, ensuring that he was already dead or had passed away, and forthwith came forth blood and water, do we not see the fact that he had passed from the physical scenes of this life? Jesus, in fact, gave everything. The precious organization, the body of which we are a part, the church. What purchased it? What was its purchase prize? Did God establish it for free? He did not. It had great value. When Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus, as recorded in Acts chapter 20, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church, thus, is not an organization to which we can look with disfavor in the sense that, well, it didn't cost anything, and hence it isn't worth anything. It cost the blood of the innocent, guiltless, guileless Son of God. That's how valuable the church is. Not only that, what might we say about what else that blood makes possible? In 1 John 2, verse 2, did not the inspired apostle of love decree that that very blood cleanses all the world from sin, those who come to him obediently? To say all of that is in fact to answer it. For indeed you and I are redeemed by the blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 18. Not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the incorruptible blood of Christ are you and I redeemed, bought back from the devil's hell, to be able to live in harmony, fellowship, and communion with the God of heaven. But might we even go somewhat deeper than that? Not only does that aspect of value seem so easily to be seen, let's take that a step further and look at it even in a personal way. It has to do with the following observation. 
Sometimes you and I hear statements, perhaps in articles, things that might be said by a preacher on a radio program or other things about cheap religion. And it's as though things are presented in a free fashion. God has saved you by His grace. You need do nothing for it. And hell will be populated by many who've heard and believed such nonsense as that. I've tried to state it in the following way. Religion that's cheap isn't worth anything. Anyone who believes, holds to, clings to, and grasps a religion proclaimed as free get exactly what, they're, what they think they're getting. It's worth nothing. We've just seen that the Christian religion was bought with an incredibly great price. It has an incredibly high value. Its cost was not nothing. It cost something. The blood of Christ, His life. Any religion that is thus proclaimed in the sense of absolute freeness as though man must do nothing to procure and acquire it, that religion isn't worth anything. And sadly, we live in a world where we all like things that are free, and that idea has crept so powerfully into religion that many have swept it up and fully imbibed it as though it's Bible truth. A religion that's cheap isn't worth anything. To say that perhaps differently, it is true Christianity was bought by God for us. You and I could never have earned salvation. You and I could never be good enough, for we are sinners. Do we not read in Romans 6.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? That's Romans 3.23. Three chapters later, the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, before which He had said the wages of sin is death. Perhaps we should pause a moment. Given that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that word all is inclusive of every person born of Adam and Eve. That's us. No one is exempt from that statement. If it's true then that the wages of sin is death, it naturally follows that all of us are thereby subject to spiritual eternal death, period. There is then nothing that you and I of our own accord and by our own merit could do to merit, to earn, to be valued with the worth of salvation of ourselves. It is in that position that we read, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men and Titus to eleven. Hence, God in a marvelous initiative made available a plan for salvation. Was it free? No, it wasn't free. It cost the blood of His Son. Is it free to us? No, it's not. You and I must do something to acquire it. You and I must obey. As we noted earlier, there are many who have been told, you must do nothing really for God's grace will save you because He loves you. God and His love will offer salvation to you, but you and I must accept it. And that degree of acceptance brings us back to David's refrain in 2 Samuel 24. I will not offer to God of that which doth cost me nothing. We worship a great God. We serve a God who's worth a lot more than nothing. But do we sometimes, due to our own failures and our own misgivings and our own misunderstandings try to offer to him that which really is worth basically nothing. We remember in the Old Testament that in terms of the sacrifices, God would not accept those sacrifices that were pitiful and sick and weak. He demanded they offer to him the best. For you see, God is a powerful, great, holy God and he deserves the best, does he not? 
In Deuteronomy 17, verse 1, in fact, God directly commanded, Thou shalt not offer unto the Lord thy God that which has blemish, that which has spot, that which is deformed or in some way malayed. They were to offer perfect sacrifices. May you and I thus think about our life again. Do we sometimes try to offer God really what's the scraps, what's the leftovers, what really is not costing me anything? In Israel, would that not sometimes have been tempting? A gentleman had a herd of sheep, and he knows he needs to feed his family, and he knew he would need to trade and barter with those sheep to provide the other things necessary. But there's one sheep that's sick and weakly. Maybe it's blind. Well, he knows he can't sell that sheep for anything, so I'll sacrifice that one to God. God said, Thou shalt not. We serve a holy God a great God, an awesome God. And He is deserving and worthy of far more than what doesn't cost us anything. Perhaps as we think about some of the applications of that, I've listed some questions, some things that may challenge each of us, as God's Word so often does. That which has no cost in religion has no value. That point we've already asserted. But let's now attempt to consider it in some ways of direct application. What about the way that you and I use our time and our energy? Each and every one of us have 168 hours in every week if we live the entirety of the week. Do we attempt to use 165 of them for us and just scrape by with giving God the three that's left over? Does that seem like that's, in fact, offering to God basically what's not costing me anything? I'll use up 99% of it for myself. Just give him what's left over. Or what about my energy? I'm able to provide all kinds of energy for recreation and movies and all the other things of life. Do I find myself giving God what I basically can scrape together when I'm not too tired to recuperate from everything else? It's something to think about, isn't it? Or consider yet another, what about my commitment? Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, He that putteth his hand to the plow and looketh back, it and fit for the kingdom of heaven. What about my commitment? You and I have commitments to a lot of things in life. That's true, isn't it? If we hold down a job, we have a commitment to that employer to do the best that we can while we're on that job, performing the service for which we've contracted. We have commitments in regard to our family to provide for them the food, the clothing, the shelter that's necessary. Do we also have commitment to God? We certainly do. I should be at His services every time the doors open. I should give as I have been prospered, for that's what He demanded, 1 Corinthians 16. I should provide of myself that which shows devotion and commitment to Him. Does He deserve anything less? David said, I will not offer to the Lord my God sacrifices, burnt offerings of that which doth cost me nothing. If our service to God isn't demanding some sacrifice of us, I might submit to us, we aren't serving Him very much. If my Christianity and yours doesn't demand sacrifice on my part, I'm trying to offer God what's costing me nothing. And that's not acceptable service. That's not high-quality service. That's giving God the leftovers. Some of the things it might cost me. 
Are there certain friendships that you will not allow to grow because you know that person's a bad influence? And you know that person will not so conduct himself or herself to lead you down a pathway of godliness. That's one thing that you may have to sacrifice. A friendship that you may have to distance yourself from because of the conduct and behavior of that person. Isn't it still true that evil communications corrupt good manners? 1 Corinthians 15, 33. How often in the Bible do we remember that associations and friendships led many times to problems? In fact, when Samson so befriended the lady whom he would finally marry as Delilah, that didn't turn out very well for him, did it? He ultimately not only lost her, he lost his eyesight. God departed from him and he didn't even know it. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that sad that we can be so deluded that we see the relationship but we lose sight of the fact that God's no longer with us. How careful we must be then. That may be one of the matters that we'd have to give up. A close friendship, a dear friend perhaps in days gone by that we must distance in order to maintain an association closely with God. Perhaps another, are there activities, certain things that we will not do? I know you and I have often spoken with those who perhaps in a former style of life came to realize the offer of the blood of Jesus, became Christians, and many things they had to give up because they come to realize the demand of God and what God demands of our life. It's safe to say there are many things in our world a Christian cannot do in a supportive way by approval of God. It's just that simple, and it has always been that way. Satan will make sure of that. It's true, our young people must make decisions. Many things they're encouraged to do that they know that they cannot and still find the blessing of God. But even us who are older, we too must make similar kinds of decisions. Sometimes it seems not as much fraught with pressure. But day by day, all of us must decide on the job, can I do that? Should I support this? That friend who's come and asked my advice on something, if I say one way, he's going to hate me. And he's not going to be my friend any longer. We must remain true to the word, certainly using tact at all times, but we may have to sacrifice some things to be a follower of Jesus. I will not offer unto God that which hath cost me nothing. Maybe we should recall, of course, that insult is frequently going to be a companion of those who are Christians. Didn't Paul often feel the terrible weight of insult from those who were around him? Tertullus and others in the book of Acts called him names and asserted the fact he was a madman. It did not dissuade the great apostle, did it? And for my life and yours, I think we've noted in lessons in the past how that name calling, though it isn't pleasant and though it isn't a comfortable thing, that is not going to destroy you or me. Those who thus will call you or me goody two-shoes and a mama's boy or a mama's girl, in many ways, my friend, that ought to be looked on as a compliment, not an insult. For those who have been so called in that fashion are such that others have seen in their life by virtual witness and experience that they will not compromise their principles nor the truth of God to pursue friendships, however lucrative they might be. It's something again to consider, isn't it? Does my Christianity cost me something? Does yours cost you something? If it doesn't, maybe we should rethink our degree of commitment, 
our degree of dedication, for we notice that unless it's costing me something, it isn't worth anything. That which just cost me nothing, David said, I will not offer it. As we've looked at these particular applications tonight of that premise and that principle, it does lead us also to perhaps see some concluding thoughts. That lesson text from 2 Samuel 24. Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Though David had sinned earlier in that chapter by numbering Israel and now he was paying the price for that act of sin, can we not at least compliment him for appreciating the value of approach to God and making certain that he rightly approached that in the way that was appropriate and right and that was of great value? And may I submit the principle hasn't changed. You and I should seek in our ways of service and devotion to first appreciate Christianity is not free in the sense that it cost Christ everything. It demanded the shedding of his blood. Though God's grace is freely offered to all men, in that you do not and I do not have to make prerequisite prices for it, even Christianity in terms of its great blessing is not free. You and I must obey it. Mouth service to the gospel is not enough. Jesus himself declared, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. Luke 6, 26. Twenty verses later in Luke 6, 46, he said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Perhaps no grander nor more concise question than that one might be asked. If Jesus is the Lord, and he is, then you and I as proper and committed servants of him should appreciate that even if Christianity costs me my life, he still said, Be thou faithful until, that means to and to that point, including death it still would be a great reward for you and me. Heaven does wait. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. But it's prepared for those who, in fact, have sacrificed appropriately, not trying to give things away for free, but by serving diligently in their life on behalf of the one who died for them. This evening, are you serving in a cheap religion? If so, come out of that cheap religion, for Christianity is not of that variety. Christianity costs Christ everything, it will cost you everything. For Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We elevate Christ. We, in fact, humble ourselves, put ourselves much further down on the priority list, and seek to please our Heavenly Father. No cost, no value. Though at times we may seek that phrase, no cost, in the monetary matters of our world in religion, that's deadly. In religion, no cost is deadly. Come tonight if you need to. Render obedience unto the name of Christ who gave everything for you and will ask everything of you. He demands to be on the throne of your life. He will take no equals. He will not play second fiddle to anyone or anything. This evening, if we could be of assistance to your initial obedience to the gospel, Jesus, in fact, demands that you believe him to be the Son of God. And you must believe that with all your heart. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His sweet name as your Savior, as the Son of God. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins. There can be no option, no discussion on those points. Once you have been baptized, He adds you to the church at that moment. Live faithfully till death. Always sacrificing and serving Him faithfully and diligently and with great devotion. 
And you will appreciate with each passing day the power of David's statement. I will not offer to God that which hath cost me nothing. If we could assist you tonight in that initial obedience or in rededicating your life to the Savior, let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.